Last February, I started getting all kinds of phone calls from media types, you know, newspaper reporters, television reporters, and they were asking me, what do you think about this lost tomb of Jesus thing? And I have to be honest, I didn't even know what they were talking about. I didn't know that James Cameron, the guy who directed the Titanic and then also some other subpar films, I didn't know that he had gotten, <laughs> gotten into this thing of, of claiming that they found the bones of Jesus over in Ossuary in Jerusalem. And once I started looking into it, I saw that real quickly there wasn't anything to it, but it just seems like these things just keep getting trotted out every Easter. But basically what happens is uh, Cameron claims that, you know, Jesus' bones or actually his dust is in there and, and they found his DNA, which I think is just hilarious. I told the group last week, isn't it? Oh, we don't even know who the Anne Nicole's baby's father is, but they claim they know the DNA of Jesus. And um, you know, that's a head scratcher, isn't it? It's, you know, it's so lame. But they were asking me, you know, don't you think this is just going to finish off Christianity? And what are you guys going to do about this, this incredible challenge to you people of faith? And nothing makes me bristle like being called a, a people of faith. It's like you people don't believe in science. You people like, you know, not sure that you live in the city. Maybe you don't have indoor plumbing. You're sort of like people of faith. And you people just swallow anything. And after all, James Cameron has this hard dust evidence that Jesus' bones are in this box. And so I'm just telling you this morning, you know, we got to ask the question. We got to take it head on. You know, I've been pastor here for 22 years, and I think one thing I've never done is I've never ducked a hard question. In fact, I kind of like them. I like it when somebody asks me a hard question because there's nothing better than being asked a hard question when you got proof, when you know the answer. So well, let's, let's take that on today, and, and we need to check it out. I mean, um, what is in this box? I'll, I'll show you later on. And uh, if it is the bones of Jesus, then... Game, set, match. We're out of here. Well, let me just, let me just back up a little bit and ask, ask you, why, why do you think it is that every Easter somebody trots out one of these things? Because this lost tomb of Jesus stuff, and by the way, you know, I just encourage you to, to examine, examine it with, with you know, objective evidence because it just crumbles like the dust that they say is in the box. But I, I ask myself, why do people keep coming up with this stuff? Because it was like the Gospel of Judas, you know, it rushed out at Easter. And wow, man, here's Judas, Gospel of Judas, and Jesus, Mary, Mary, Mary Magdalene, didn't really rise from the grave, and, and all this stuff. And then before that, it was the Da Vinci Code. And then, you know, before that, it was the, the Jesus scholars who got together and voted on whether or not parts of the Bible were really the Word of God. I think it was a white marble if it was, they thought it was really God's Word, and a black marble if they didn't think it was, and a pink marble if they weren't sure. And I won't even go there. I, I, I just, I mean, just so many crazy things. And you keep wondering, why do they trot this out every Easter? And, you know, the media types, and I, and I really appreciate these guys because they're, they're doing their best to cover the story and they're trying to cover both angles. And I'm not getting after them because they're doing a good job. And, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the reporters that I talked to, they were people who, who believe the same things that we do. But one of the questions that they, they were asking me a lot is, um, you know, what about... What, what's this going to do to you people? You mean, after all, if they come up with evidence and, you know, they, Jesus' DNA is in the box and supposedly one out of, every, one out, it's, it's proof that that is Jesus' tomb, the chance that it might not be is one in 600 and, or, you know, and so all this stuff kept coming out. And the question was asked to me, what's this going to do to you? And I, I thought about this. On, on June 11th this year, Mary Allison and I will be married for 30 years. And 
I, I think back on that a lot now because at my age, it's kind of hard to remember anything that happened 30 years ago. But I remember that real, real well, you know? Because she and I stood at the altar in the fine arts building in my, my college, and my dad was our pastor, and he performed the wedding, and our friends and our family were all there. I think I talked to you about that a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we signed the marriage license. We filed it with Tarrant County, you know, and all that. And if somebody came up to me and said, at my anniversary this year, and said, Mark, I have proof that you're not married, I'd just say, are you nuts? I mean, because I was there. Mary Alice and I have lived together as husband and wife for 30 years. We have three sons. You know, there's a wedding license, and it's filed with Tarrant County. If you want to, you can go check it out. And what I'd be saying is there's proof. I, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of proof you come to me with. I know I'm married. It's all, that's it. The issue is, though, if they could go talk to someone who maybe is a friend of mine or someone who's on the periphery, and they can say, I got proof that Mark's not married. And that could unsettle that person. So what I would want to make sure is I want to make sure that person gets the proof. Just like I'm going to try to make sure today that you have the proof that Jesus' bones are not in that box or his dust or what, his DNA or anything else. You know, now here's the thing, though. If somebody came back every anniversary of mine, every June 11th, they came back and trotted out a new proof that Mary Alice and I weren't married, I would know at some point either that person is just flaming nuts or number two, I would know that person has an agenda. So that's what I'm focusing on today. I mean, everybody trots out these, not everybody, but a lot of people trot out these stories around Easter that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And so my question is today, does it really matter? Because that was a question that was posed to me by a reporter here locally in Wichita. And he asked me, he said, Mark, you know, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you Christians believe that. But he said, suppose that he didn't really rise physically from the grave. Suppose Cameron is right. Maybe, maybe his bones are in this box, and... Um, Maybe Jesus rose in a sort of spiritual kind of way or a metaphysical kind of way. And he's saying, after all, couldn't that be some sort of middle ground? Couldn't that be a compromise between science, woo science, and religion? And you know, I don't like religion at all. Because to me, religion is just man's flailing attempt to connect with God. What I care about is truth. Because, see, that's what I said to this reporter. Because he said, you know, you people of faith, you have your system of beliefs, and then science has its system of beliefs. And I stopped him right there, and I said, no, 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 no. Truth trumps everything. Everything has to bow to truth. Science has to bow to truth. Medicine has to bow to truth. Religion has to bow to truth. Truth trumps everything. And I have to be honest. If somehow, and I know they didn't because I have proof that he rose, but if indeed they found Jesus' bones in this box, I'd have to deal with that head-on, just like I told that reporter. I said, I'm not ducking the question because I'm a person of faith. So let's talk about that this morning. I want to make sure that you have hard evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. In fact, here's the reason why nobody can ever shake me that Jesus rose from the grave. I have hard proof. So this morning, I want to give you some of it. I can't give you, give you all of it today, but I promise you, I'll give you enough. The question I want to go back to before I get into the proof is, does it really matter? I mean, that's what the reporter asked me. He said, Mark, does it really matter that Jesus rose from the grave? Could I, could I just lay it on you this morning from the very beginning that the Bible cuts itself no slack in this area? Because the Bible indicates that the most important fact in the world is that three days after Jesus died, he got up under his own power and walked out of the grave. Now, let me tell you how important this is to God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, here's what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, one thing is clear. The Bible is always telling us that salvation is a matter of believing. I mean, we're told that it's not good works. It's not doing sacraments. It's not going to church. 
It's not even being nice to your neighbors. All the things that a lot of people think will get you into heaven, God says that won't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. Only one thing will get you to heaven, and that is faith. That's believing. That's why we had the It series a few weeks ago. But don't you find it interesting that when God congeals it down to just one fact that you need to believe in order to be saved, listen to that again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Do you see why I can't concede that point to anybody? Because that's the one thing that you must believe in order to be saved. Well, one more time I want to let you know the Bible doesn't cut itself any slack because here's what the Bible says. Remember the reporter asked me, he said, you know, maybe Jesus rose in some sort of metaphysical kind of way and his body is in the grave. And he said, you know, that way you could kind of do your Christian gig and you could kind of like tip your hat to science too. I want you to listen to the fact the Bible doesn't cut itself any slack. Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and he's dealing with this question, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Notice how Paul and God back themselves into a corner on this one. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. Now, I've been preaching since I was 16 years old. I've been pastoring for the last 30 years, and I've spoken thousands of times. You know what that means? It was all a crock. <laughs> it's worthless. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. So there goes that people of faith deal, because if Jesus' bones are in that box, that's the joke of the world, that we would be people of faith, because the Bible says our faith is useless. And then he, Paul said, we apostles would all be lying about God, for we said that God raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. You're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, and we went out to, when we went out to the cemetery, and we left behind the body of our dad or our mom or our grandfather, grandmother, our sister, brother, or child, and we said, you know what, we're going to see this person again, and he or she's in a better place, and we sang songs about heaven. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave and his bones are still in that box, then according to the Bible, everybody who died is gone, lost forever. And no wonder Paul closed out by saying, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. So now, let's ask. Let's take it head on. I'm not backing away. I'm not, I'm not shying away because I'm saying, you know, if his bones are in the box, game, set, match. Do I have any proof Jesus rose from the grave? Well, I have a lot. By the way, before I get started, I don't know if many of you recognize the name Lou Wallace because he was a novelist from last century, in the early part of the last century. But Lou Wallace was a complete agnostic. He didn't believe in God, or he wasn't sure there was a God. He got together with another atheist, and they decided they were going to forever disprove that Jesus, you know, that Jesus is who he says he was, that he was more than just an itinerant teacher. And they were going to write the definitive book that would forever stamp Christianity out. And so Lou Wallace tackled the resurrection. That was what he was going to do. He was going to read the text of the resurrection. He was going to apply science and, and logic, and he was going to write his side of the book forever debunking Christianity. The odd thing is, when Lou Wallace examined the things that you and I are about to examine today, it caused him to, like Lance sang a few moments ago, it decided him to come to a defining moment. And in that defining moment, he said, I have to believe it is a fact Jesus rose from the grave. And that atheist became the novelist. If you've ever heard, the, heard of the, the novel Ben-Hur, Lou Wallace wrote that. It was an awesome story. So I want to talk to you about, about the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Let me, let me just sort of turn the cards over and give you proof. Here's the first one. And this is really kind of funny. Because after Jesus died, you know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they came and they wrapped his body up 
and they, you know, put about 75 pounds of spices and stuff on him. That's how they embalmed in those days. Jesus was poor. There was no place for him to be buried. And this rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, said, hey, you can, you can, you, you can use my tomb. Which, by the way, is not really an issue because Jesus didn't really do any damage to it. He was just there three days, right? <laughs> so they wrapped Jesus' body up, you know, and, and, and they, they put him in this tomb. And at that point, something happened. You know, I'm sure it was the enemies of Jesus thinking that, that they were, um, were going to help themselves and what they didn't realize, they really, really helped us. Let's read about it. This was in Matthew 27, 62. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor. He's the boss, makes all the decisions. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone that he was raised from the dead. Well, that's not likely to happen because his disciples are scattered like frightened quail. Remember, they left Jesus tonight. He was arrested, and they were a bunch of scared puppies. But the, the leading religious people, the people who have put Jesus on the cross, they said, we're a little freaked about this thing, and we're scared to death. The disciples are going to come and take his body. And then they said, if that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Man, you know, if anybody was going to try to create a hoax with the resurrection, this is really ramping it up. Because at least we know by Saturday, Jesus' body is still in the grave because the soldiers are coming to seal the tomb. Very obviously, it was still there. And this was, you know, probably Saturday morning. So they take this massive stone out of the way, and then they put it back, and then they seal it so that if it were tampered with, anybody would know it. And then these guards, can you imagine guarding a dead man to keep him coming out of the grave? But that's what they did. These guards stood there, and I want you to know that these guards were not minimum wage guards. I mean, these guards were the equivalent of what we would call the Green Beret or the Navy SEALs. I mean, if they let any, it was so heavy on them that if they let anything happen when they were guarding something, they would be brutally punished by the Romans. And so these guards knew they really had to take care of business. So here they are, they're all standing outside the grave, and there's a watch, so we don't really know how many there were. There might have been six, there might have been 12, there might have been up to 50, we don't know. But these guards were standing outside the grave, and, uh, you know, they, they weren't cartoon-like guards like you see, you know, in, in old Bible stories and stuff like that. I mean, these guys were crack-fighting men. They were great guys. And so here they are outside the grave. Well, the only problem that they had was they were against a force they'd never fought before. Sunday morning, before daylight, something began to happen in that tomb power of God hit that thing and it jolted and Jesus Christ came back to life stood up and it's so cool when you read about this he like took everything off that was on him the grave clothes and folded them neatly teenagers did you hear that that's really big and men did you hear that <laughs> he folded it real neatly and he like walked out there was this earthquake and the power of God was so great that like all the soldiers fell over and collapsed and Jesus just walked out. Well, now, the, the, um, <laughs> the soldiers have issues because they were supposed to guard a dead man, and he came out, and the seal is broken, and they don't know. I mean, they just know there was this earthquake, and boom, they fell over, and, and now he's not in the grave. 
Well, the Bible tells us that, that the soldiers had to go, you know, tell, tell, the, um, you know, tell the others that, that this had happened. And they told these religious leaders that, that Jesus wasn't there anymore. And they said, hey, uh, let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 28 and verse 11. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told, told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get into trouble. Well, you see what happened. And somebody would say, well, Mark, you just said a few moments ago that if the guards let anything happen, they would be in trouble. Well, you have to understand, Pilate's only concern was that these religious leaders would not be offended. And so the religious leaders paid the soldiers money. And they said, hey, we'll just tell Pilate we're cool with everything. And that's what happened. Don't you find that interesting? Here you have God allowing guards to be out there to prove that nobody came and tampered with the grave and Jesus rose from the grave. Well, let me give you number two. How about habeas corpus? You know, some of you are attorneys and you know that, you know, the great writ is habeas corpus, which means, you know, you should have the person, you should have the body. Uh, you can't indict someone in, in their absence and then just say, hey, you know, we've already had your trial, and by the way, you're guilty, you never showed up in court, and you were never told that you were indicted. No, we have habeas corpus, and, and, and really in Latin it means you should have the body. Well, I think that's one of the things that should stand out to us as a proof that Jesus rose from the grave, because here, think about this. When, when Christianity started and exploded on the scene after the resurrection, the powers that were had every vested interest in stopping Christianity. Romans didn't want it because they didn't want anything to unsettle the apple cart. The, the Jewish religious leaders did not want it. I mean, think about the great links that all the powers that were had gone to stamp out Christianity. The Roman government, Herod's government, the Jewish religious establishment, everything had gone out. All the powers that were had gone out of their way to make sure that Christianity didn't flourish. Now, here's the, here's the deal. If a belief system is based on the fact that a dead man came out of the tomb, what do you have to do to shut it all down? Habeas corpus. Bring the body. Now, I find it interesting because, you know, Cameron said, well, the name of Jesus is all over this, and a lot of people question as to whether or not it's really the name of Jesus, but he says the name is on this ossuary. What would happen with an, with, with an ossuary is a person would be placed in the grave for about a year, and after decomposition had taken its place, then we would put them in the box. All I'm saying is this. If you have this prominent cemetery, if you have this prominent burial, prominent burial site in Jerusalem, all somebody has to do is say, hey, there's his body, there's his grave. That's what we do with other leaders. I was watching the Biography Channel this week. Lenin died. You know the Bolshevik guy who was the keystone of the revolution, Russian Revolution? They still have his body out where you can go see it. And so I keep thinking about that. You know, all the powers, all the governmental powers, all they had to do is trot the body of Jesus out and say, here he is, he's still dead. That would have shut everything down. But they could not. They could not produce the body of Jesus. Well, let me just keep on going here. Let me give you another proof. Witnesses. Now, somebody could say, well, Mark, you know, I find this a little dubious because Jesus at this point had 11 disciples, and maybe he just showed up before them, and they just said, hey, or, or maybe they just thought he showed up, and they said, we're going to tell everybody Jesus arose. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter. Okay. 
he's a disciple. Maybe, maybe Peter lied about this. And then by the 12. Boy, it's tougher to have 12 people on a conspiracy. But there are 12. After that, look at this. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Now, there have been people who really wrestle with this one because they said, well, maybe there were 500 people who had a mass hallucination. <laughs> now, some of us came out of the 60s, right? And some of you guys and ladies tried some of those mind-bending drugs. Now, can you imagine what it was like to have the same hallucination with somebody else who was trying the same thing? That would have been tough, but then to have the same hallucination as 500 people. Outside of American Idol, I'm not sure that's possible. <laughs> no. But, I mean, think about that. Jesus, when he showed up in those days after his resurrection, he came out there in front of 500 people, and then the Bible says, at one time. It wasn't like he appeared to 500 people, you know, one at a time, all at one time. And then, look at this. Paul said, though some have died, he said, most, excuse me, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Now, when, when Paul wrote this, it was about 25 years after the resurrection. So these 500 people who saw Jesus alive, most of whom, they, they, you, you could go check it out. You could go ask them. I mean, for instance, a lot of us were alive in 1986. And when the, space, when the space shuttle exploded. And somebody could tell us that didn't happen. And we'd say, hey, we saw it. We know it happened. I mean, there are a lot of things that happened 25 years ago. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I don't think that happened, you would say, I know it happened. I was there and I saw it. And Paul had said, he'd said, check me out. I mean, if you think Jesus' bones are in this box, go talk to There's a lot of people out there who saw him at one time and know that he rose from the grave. So a lot of witnesses. Can I get to my favorite proof? My favorite proof, I don't know how to, how to say this except just to call it the transformation of the, uh, of the disciples. Do you remember the night Jesus was arrested? You know, they'd all said, hey, we're with you, bro. <laughs> we're going with you all the way. I mean, if you go down, we go down with you. And Peter even said, hey, these other, these, these other guys, I'm not too sure about them. But even if they check out on you, Peter's saying, I'm going with you. Well, you know, people talk brave until the weapons come out, right? <laughs> Hey, man, boy, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm one of your boys. I'm in your entourage. But when the guns and knives come out, it's a different matter. And when they came to arrest Jesus, you know, the temple police and the guards and, and you know, all these people came with swords and, and they started taking Jesus away and cuffing him. Man, the disciples, they scurried like frightened quail. And they were afraid, really, the whole time that Jesus was in trouble. They didn't go to the trial. Peter was like way off, and he lied and said he didn't know Jesus and even cursed and tried to behave like someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus. And then at Jesus' crucifixion, it seems like the only disciple who was there to even watch was John. And then after Jesus was crucified, they weren't saying, okay, we've got our watch ticket. Now three days he's going to rise from the grave. Man, they were grieving, and they were hiding. They were behind locked doors. They had thought, this thing is all over. They had forgotten about the resurrection, or they didn't believe it was possible. When you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the church that follows Jesus' stories in the Gospels, you see some different guys. These are guys, 
that, you know, they're just not the same. I mean, they're so bold, and when, some, when people try to come and, and tell them they shouldn't say anything more about Jesus, they just keep right on going. Now, I want to read to you a little scripture here from John chapter 20, verse 19. We're going to see what the disciples were like before the resurrection, what they were like after. That Sunday evening, this is the Sunday night after Jesus arose. be like tonight. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now, from the moment of Jesus' ascension, which would happen in just a few days, the church was up and running. It's like what we're doing today, we're like part of the baton passing from what happened right after Jesus arose. And these disciples who were so scared and so worried about dying, all of a sudden they were out of the closet, and they went out and told everybody Jesus had arisen. Now, it seems like in the early days of the church there were about 120 people. A few days later on Pentecost, 3,000 came in. A few days later, 5,000 more came in. And then after that, the church grew so rapidly they couldn't even number. There's no number after that given to the size of the church because there was no way they could calculate how many followers of Jesus there were. And I'm sure that what happened was all these people who saw the resurrected Jesus, they just networked throughout the community and told everybody what they saw. And so the church just exploded in growth. Well, the same people who crucified Jesus were really scared to death now because they saw this burgeoning movement. And they said, we got to shut this thing down. And they remembered how fearful Jesus' disciples had been, how they had run and been threatened and intimidated. So they started the intimidation process with these followers of Jesus. And at first they threatened them. They said, hey, don't you talk anymore in this guy's name. And they just went right back out and told it again. They arrested him again. And they put him in jail. And after they let them out a few days later, they said, now listen, we've shown you what we can do. We can, we can bust you guys and put you in jail. And so don't talk anymore in his name. They went right back out and started telling everybody that Jesus had risen. And then they brought him back in, and this time they whipped them. Remember that's what they did with Jesus? They whipped him. They took, they took this leather whip, and they started beating the disciples. And they put stripes all over their body, and they're saying, listen now, we're turning up the heat. And we're showing you what we can do to you guys if you don't stop telling everybody this man rose from the grave. And it's what Peter said that I find so amazing. Because remember, he was the one who lied and said he didn't know Jesus. Peter said, hey, you guys do what you have to do. If you want to whip us, if you want to kill us, you do what you have to do because we got to do what we do. We got to do what we have to do. And here's what he said. I love this. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Peter said, it doesn't matter what you do to us because we can't stop. He said, we're like an 18-wheel truck rolling downhill with no brakes. He said, there's just nothing we can do about this. We saw this man come back to life, and we can't help ourselves. We're just going to tell people what we have seen and what we have heard. And sure enough, these guys, with the exception of John, and I'll talk about him in a minute, these guys all went to horrible deaths testifying that they saw the Lord. By the way, can you imagine how difficult it is to threaten somebody with death after they've seen somebody come back to life? Because, I mean, they kept telling these disciples, we're going to kill you. And they said, well, hey, it's not a problem for us because the guy we follow, he's got that death thing all worked out. <laughs> hey, listen to this. You want to know how these guys died? Matthew was killed with a sword. Mark was dragged until he was dead in Alexandria, Egypt. Luke was hanged to death in Greece. Peter was crucified. 
but he said he wasn't worthy. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like Peter? He said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like the Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. You remember Jesus was on top of the temple one time, and Satan told him to throw himself down. I guess James, who was a pastor in Jerusalem, had told everybody this story, and they said, hey, we're going to fix you. They took him up to the same spot in the temple, threw him down 100 feet, and when they got to his body, they found out he was still breathing, so they beat him to death with clubs. Bartholomew was beaten to death with a whip in Turkey. Remember seeing High Plains Drifter? You remember what happened with the sheriff there? It was the same thing was hap- happened with Bartholomew. If you've ever seen the Union Jack flag in Great Britain, you'll know there's a Christian cross, and then behind it there's an X. That X is called the cross of St. Andrew because Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. We shouldn't call him that anymore because Thomas told everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead until he was speared to death in India. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was shot to death with arrows. Simon was sawn in half while he was still alive. Now, here's the the point I want to make to you. Will will people die for a lie? I doubt it. I mean, because, you know, here's the thing. If if, if after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples started the movement, they were all driving Ferraris and wearing Rolexes and living in million-dollar mansions like some of the TV evangelists, I'd say maybe so. But these guys, I mean, they weren't advantaged personally because of their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. All they got out of this was persecution. And you know, at some point, if there's a, if there's a lie going on and Jesus' body is stashed somewhere back in Jerusalem, I think they're going to say one by one, I'm out, I'm out, I'm not going to take this. And beyond that, you know, what happens to that second or third disciple after he's seen his comrade killed and murdered? I mean, you would think at some point they would say, hey, wait a minute. He didn't really rise from the dead. But one by one by one, they went to the most horrible, unimaginable deaths, saying, you do what you have to do to us. We can't stop. We've got to tell people what we saw and what we've heard. <laughs> well, this is, my time's up, so that's it for proofs, but I'm just getting it started. There's so many proofs that Jesus rose from the grave. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, hey, Mark, his bones are in that box, It's like trying to prove to me I'm not married. I've got overwhelming, unchallengeable evidence is what it is. I know that Jesus rose from dead. You want to know what's in the box here? Oh, my creative team knows what I like. So (laughs) Now you do have to serve somebody. And the thing about Jesus rising is it takes away all middle ground, doesn't it? You either have to acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, or you have to reject him. You know, I, I get asked every once in a while by reporters, why, because, you know, I, I just tell them, I'm, I struggle with all this stuff. These, these people trot out these, these lame ideas at Easter, and, and they say, well, why do you think, you know, people like Cameron do this? Do you, do you, as a person of faith, do you think this is a really evil person? I don't think so. Maybe so. But I'll tell you why I think these people keep trotting this stuff out. Because here's the deal. Once you start admitting that Jesus rose from the grave, you have to start asking tough questions. See, people, people say, How do you, what makes Christianity different from the other religions of the world? Duh. First of all, I don't think it is a religion. I mean, we follow a person. I mean, other religions can take you to a tomb, and you can stand there, and you can pay homage to your leader who's in the tomb. We don't do that. Our leader's alive. But that's the deal. See, that's why I think people keep trotting out this lame stuff. 
Because see, here's the thing. At the moment that I admit that he's alive, then that takes me what to them would appear to be down the slippery slope. Because if he rose from the dead, he's somebody more than an average person. He's got to be God. And if he's who he says he is, and he died for my sins, and he's saying that he is the way, truth, and the life, then at that point it's incumbent upon me to accept him or reject him. And if I accept him, it's going to change my life and it's going to change who I am. It's going to make me a different person. And so what I got to do is I got to keep saying, well, maybe he didn't rise from the dead and maybe his bones are in this box and maybe he married Mary Magdalene and maybe he had a kid somewhere, maybe blah, 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 blah. And it's not because the evidence is there. It's what that person would have to say and do if they ever admit to themselves that he's alive. But it's you and me now. And I want to ask you this. Have you ever received Jesus into your heart and life? Because the Bible tells us that eternal life isn't received because we're good or because we're religious. It's received because we accept Jesus Christ into our lives to be our Savior and our Lord. That's why every weekend in all three services, I always give people a chance to ask Jesus into their lives. He is alive and he'll listen to you. Would you bow your head with me, please, for just a moment? If you've never prayed to receive Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. These are not the only words you can pray. You can pray your own prayer if you wish. But if you would like to invite the living Jesus into your life to forgive you of your sins and to make you live forever and go to heaven, if you'd like to do that, you can pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I believe you rose from the grave. I trust you with my eternal soul. Forgive me of my sins. Make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did that with me, I'd like to ask you to do something. You got a worship folder when you came in today, and there's a detachable panel. If you prayed to receive Jesus, would you let me know and say, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Jesus. If you'll give me some kind of address this week, my team will get you three easy-to-understand booklets. One of them is an easy-to-understand New Testament. And we'll mail them to you this week. And we won't harass you, we won't bother you in any way. But we just want to help you know what it's like to take your first steps. You can detach that card. There are boxes by the back doors or at the bottom of the staircases. You can also let us know if you want information about the church. There are boxes for that. There's a little area for a prayer request if you want to share a prayer request with us. We're just so glad that you're here today. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward to receive our morning offering. If you're our guest here today, please don't feel any pressure to participate in this offering. We're just so thankful that you're here. This offering is for our church family. And if you feel compelled or led to give a gift to the Lord today, we're going to ask a blessing upon the offering. And then Lance and the team will come and close the service. Father, we're thankful that you raised Jesus from the dead. We believe it with all our hearts. Bless this offering. Use it. Multiply these gifts to transform the world. In Jesus' name, amen.